Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Um, as I mentioned before, First and Second Chronicles was originally one book, and it has a clear objective of tracing uh, God's chosen people, Israel. Uh, the books were uh, written for the, the purpose of the book was really to uh, write a history tracing God's people um, as an encouragement to the Jews returning from Babylon after captivity. Uh, the narrative uh, uh, continues, and I have a little quick little outline. I don't know if this is in your notes. I don't recall if I put it in there, but uh, continues to follow the tribe of Judah as opposed to the northern kingdom of, of um, Israel. Uh, from the tribe of, tribe of Judah, of course, Judah will, our, our Messiah will come. Uh, you'll notice in Second Chronicles that all the kings of the northern kingdom, Israel, are not talked about, except, you know, they get mentioned every so often in terms of their relationship with the kings of Judah, but they're not, their stories are not tell, told. That's, you'll find that in First and Second Kings. As with First Chronicles and its treatment of David's reign, uh, Second Chronicles generally portrays Solomon in a favorable light. Uh, in fact, there's really not a whole lot negative about Solomon at all in Second Chronicles. Uh, God's covenantal promises are really um, the primary concern in this book as they relate to the immediate uh, audience, and that is the immediate audience of the book would have been the Jews returning from captivity. So the covenants and the temple, temple worship, very critical uh, in First and Second Chronicles. As I mentioned, the historical setting, First Chronicles starts really with Adam, but through a, gene a very extensive genealogy, the most extensive you'll find in scripture, goes all the way up here to David. And so First Chronicles really, after nine chapters of genealogy, then the, the, the other 20-so chapters uh, deal with David. And a great part of it is David's preparation for building the temple, which God said he wouldn't do, but that Solomon, his son, would. So now we're in Second Chronicles, and second, the history of Second Chronicles is largely covered, also covered, I say concurrently, in First and Second Kings. So First Chronicles starts here. Second Chronicles was mostly here, but technically starts here. Second Chronicles is here. It's written for the people who are really right here. This is after the 70-year captivity. Uh, Second Chronicles ends here, but does mention this. So you, um, but it, chapter 36 is the last chapter, and it's like your last chapter covers um, the fall of Jerusalem, 586, and then uh, announcing the return. So that gives you a little historical uh, background. Um, two periods and three events are the historical markers. The, the period would be the first period, would be the first, chap first nine chapters uh, speak of, of <coughs> Solomon, and that would be the United uh, Israel, United Kingdom. There's no northern and southern, no Israel, no Judah. And then uh, the first significant event is the Civil War, when Solomon's son Rehoboam 
um, is not uh, wise like his father. And so there's a civil war. Uh, Jeroboam uh, says, we have no part with you. Uh, says, we're going to go north. They established their capital of Samaria. That's Israel. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, their capital is Jerusalem. And so then the, the remainder of the book covers the kings of Judah. And we'll talk, probably a big bulk of our time will be about that. And then in 586, the fall of Jerusalem, they had a succession of very brief evil kings. And finally, God said, I'm sending Babylon to uh, do my work because you guys are, are just not uh, following me. And then at the very end of the book, you have uh, the beginning of restoration, which really is a tie-in to the very beginning of Ezra, which we'll talk about next week. So the end of 2 Chronicles mirrors the beginning of Ezra. That's why we think Ezra may have written 2 Chronicles, but we're not sure. It's quite possible that it was written before that. We just don't know for sure. Um, so as I mentioned, um, the first nine chapters uh, deals with the reign of Solomon. This is Israel's golden age. Um, peace, prosperity, wealth, um, civil reforms. His ex kingdom extends from the border of Egypt to the west and the south, uh, and the river Euphrates to the east and the north. So it's the largest it will ever be at this time. Um, I find it interesting that even the part where the Philistines live in Gaza, that's still the same today. It's like that area is just, that little strip is still, um, it's like Israel has always had their enemies nearby, right? Or um, the temple dominates the narrative. Uh, David's plans, of course, are detailed in the previous book, First Chronicles. Um, and uh, this temple was the first large structure to be built by any ruler of Israel. Solomon said, the house which I'm about to build, build will be great, for greater is our God uh, than all the gods. But he also realized it is inadequacy for the task. He was humble, at least it says in Second Chronicles, that um, he was definitely uh, expressed some humility. Uh, the Lord does appear to Solomon um, a second time at the dedication of the completed temple. God clearly states the requirement of repentance and obedience by which the nation will know his blessing or his punishment. Um, these verses especially highlight the vital importance of the temple in Judaism. And so I, I was reading through 2 Chronicles this weekend to brush up. And what stood out to me out of all 36 chapters was what happened um, in the beginning of chapter 7. And so I, I thought it's not in my notes. Solomon, in chapter 6, when they're dedicating a temple, has this remarkable prayer. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's what you would hope it would be, right? And then and they had thousands thousands of animals, oxen and, and sheep, to be sacrificed. And so here's how chapter 7 starts, and it struck me, because I think it gives you a, an appreciation 
for why, when you read the New Testament, why the temple and temple worship was so critical and why even Jesus said he had zeal. Remember when he clears the temple? He had zeal for the house of the Lord. Um, chapter 7, and again, I don't have it up here. As soon as Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. This is what struck me, too. Not only just the fact that as soon as he gets done praying, fire comes down from heaven. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Can you imagine, right? Solomon prays. They had a small platform built for him. And he prays, and as soon as he prays, fire comes down. The people, this is in front of all the people, they fall down and worship. I mean, it was probably a, a both awe, fear, joy, right? That God was in their house that, that Solomon had built, that they all contributed to. But what a moment in Jewish history. Absolutely incredible and phenomenal, right? And we have outside of, I mean, Christianity, we have the resurrection of Christ. We have Jesus's miracles, which were for a select few. But this was in front of the entire, uh, all the people that had gathered. Just remarkable. Um, makes me think of what happened with Elijah, right? Uh, which would happen later, by the way. Uh, Elijah, you'll notice Elijah and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, are not mentioned at all in 2 Chronicles because they were prophets to Israel, to the northern kingdom. Again, just proof of their apostasy. God sends them Elijah. It's just a remarkable ministry, and yet the people, king after king after king, bad, bad, bad. Um, so, um, like I said, this theme uh, sets us up for um, the remaining chapters and really for the book. Uh, the next uh, big event, of course, is the Civil War. Um, just as First Chronicles does not mention David's sins in relation to Bathsheba and Uriah, Second Chronicles does not recount the sins of Solomon, which in 1 Kings 11 are presented as the reason for the division of the kingdom. So this is important, and it's interesting how 2 Chronicles leaves this out. It focuses on the agent of the civil war, which would be Jeroboam. So um, what, you know, it doesn't mention that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Um, so I hope you're able to read this while I talk. Uh, so what, what happens is, um, well, here I have a verse that talks about it. If you recall, uh, Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam takes over. He asks the, the older, wiser people, uh, advisors, what should we do? He says, you should listen to the people, lessen the load. If you are uh, gracious, they will follow you. He says, let me think about it. Brings in the younger dudes. The younger dudes said, no, you got to show you know, that you're tough, that you're, you know, my little finger is bigger than his thigh and, you know, stuff like that. And you got to, 
you make tell them that the burden is going to be bigger. And so what happens is uh, most of the people say, we're not with you, Rehoboam. Jeroboam says, we have no part of, it, of Israel. So they, we, they went and formed the northern kingdom. So Jeroboam, son of Nebat, you, when you read First uh, and Second Kings, his name is mentioned over and over again as like the sin of Sarah. So it's, it's ironic because God uses Jeroboam to punish Rehoboam, to punish the nation Israel, but yet is still responsible for this division. Says we have no part with Israel. They go north. They establish his own, their own capital. And because they have no part with the temple, that's when they set up their own uh, place of worship in Samaria. And then they uh, set up high places throughout the region where people can do their own personal sacrifices because they don't have access to the temple anymore. Um, so, um, so ten tribes were viewed as uh, abandoning the true worship of God. That's why they're not spoke of, for the most part, in this book, Second Chronicles. Um, there could be no restoration without repentance and a submission to the God-ordained ruler out of Judah, at least from the viewpoint of who uh, authored Second Chronicles. Um, as recorded in First and Second Kings, the kings of Israel were viewed as evil uh, because of idolatry. They even killed the prophets. Um, they just failed to lead at every turn. Uh, Second Chronicles documents the reigns of each ruler of Judah, whether good or evil. However, the author is particularly tracing the spiritual line of the promise and preserving power of God. And so as you go through the narrative of Second Chronicles, it spends most of its time focusing on the good kings. The, small, the, the evil kings get very brief mention, and partly, too, because and you'd think they would read their history book or, or at least talk to people, because it seems pretty much, with, with rare exception, the bad kings not only do things not go their way, but they get sick and die usually, and their, their reign is usually less than a decade almost every time. Whereas the good kings typically reign longer, the bad kings reign shorter, and you would think they would learn something by history, but apparently they don't. Um, so, um, let's see, I'm going to try to do some. So, five distinct waves of a revival and reformation uh, are highlighted in Second Chronicles and follow these kings. All of these, and, and not all of the kings are even, when I say, I don't want to use the word perfect, Joash in particular, which we'll talk about, he's, he's one guy that was good for the first half and not good for the second. Um, and there's a reason for that. So I'm going to try and get through these kings. I just find it interesting, but I, I, um, I'm going to have to go fast. So this is where you have to bear with me. I'm only on page three. I have 11 pages to go. So... Um, let's see how I do. Um, so unlike his father um, and grandfather, Asa did what was good and right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, he removes the pagan altars, demolishes heathen pillars, chops down the wooden images. Uh, he commands the people of Judah to seek the Lord uh, and obey his commandments. When the Ethiopians attack with an army twice the size... And when we're talking hundreds of thousands, several hundred thousand, like I believe it was like 400,000, 
500,000, like half a million to a million. So we're talking, it'd be different if it was like maybe 200 versus 100. Maybe that was manageable or maybe a little, but we're talking, you know, uh, several hundred thousand more. That's a lot, right? God speaks through the prophet Azariah, giving a promise with a condition. If you seek him, you will find him. If you forsake him, he will forsake you. That seems to be the message throughout, really, not only the Old Testament, but as I've mentioned before, in something, uh, repentance is always linked with belief in the New Testament. Nowhere are you going to hear anyone in the New Testament say, oh, all you got to do is believe and everything's cool. Just acknowledge God, everything's great. No, the emphasis on believe and be saved, and to be saved means to be saved from your sinful life, to per pursue righteousness. Otherwise, it will not go well for you. And it doesn't go well for the kings who do not pursue righteousness. And so um, Asa does respond wholeheartedly to the prophecy. He took courage. Um, instead of, uh, he, he took courage and removed the idols. He restored the altar of the Lord. Um, and, you know, he reigned 41 years, which is probably longer than probably eight evil kings put together almost. Uh, but later, uh, at the end, Asa seems to lose his earlier confidence in the Lord. Easy times rarely promote spiritual growth. And it's, this is a, you know, it, even for me in my life, I feel like God has, has tremendously blessed me and I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased at where I am, but it, it would be easy to get uh, lazy. It would be easy for Christ the Word after, after the adversity that Christ the Word had to be, you know, leaving a denomination like they did. And I'm not talking about PCA, I'm talking about when it was Springfield. It wasn't easy. Lisa was there. It wasn't an easy decision, right? It wasn't anything. And they knew they were going to lose their building, right? It was a hard thing. And they went through, you know, a hard times, leaving, leaving behind the building that they renovated, right? To go have nowhere to go. But they, they wanted to do the right thing. And so then they're, and you have that time at SDA where, you know, it's almost like being in the desert in a sense, right? being in a, in a church, in a denomination you had no ties with. And so, uh, and now here we are, we're, we're settled, we have a, have a great building, we're growing, we have young families, children. It would be easy to take it for granted. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. We want to be steadfast in our belief and our commitment to pursue, to pursue um, obedience, holiness. So what happened is um, uh, Basha, or Bahasha, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, the king of Israel in the north, he invades Judah. And so Asa, instead of trusting in God like he did before, he was weak. And so he gathers gold and silver out of the temple treasury, sends it off to the king of Syria and says, will you help me? And while it did help and Syria did help him out, God... Um, the plan worked, but the Lord disapproved. And so Asa ends his day uh, in a spiritually backslidden state, and he's in severe physical pain. Uh, again, he did, not, he did not understand. He needed to stay faithful, and he didn't. Uh, the next is religious reformation under, the, under King Jehoshaphat. Um, like his father Asa in his earlier days, Jehoshaphat is a godly king. 
he encourages the people of Judah um, uh, to be faithful. And what I think is interesting here, what he does that's really remarkable, is he sends prophets and teachers um, uh, of the law uh, throughout Judah to teach them. It's why, you know, it's why we do Bible studies. It's why we have Bible studies in our home. It's why we do small group. It's um, people need to know the word. And even though you may know, uh, I, I, re I read Second Chronicles through again and still learn new things after having spent so many hours preparing this. You keep reading the word of God, you will get, you will, over and over, you will learn new things you will get encouraged. It's why coaches, even at the professional level, they're coaching the best athletes in the world and they still coach fundamentals. Right? The best basketball players in the world still practice free throws. I, I still remember going to the PGA tournament and watching guys who were the best golfers in the entire world hitting a bucket of balls after they golfed 18 holes. That just blew me away. I said, Dude, you're like number five in the world. I didn't say it to him, but I'm watching from afar. You're number five, because they have a rope, you know, they don't want us to bother them. Um, but you're number five golfer in the world, and you're hitting a bucket of balls after you golfed 18? What the heck, right? Um, okay, so um, got to get back on track here, and I'll never get through 14 if I keep doing that. Um, so as a result, he, so he does make this alliance with Israel, and that's, that's not a good... Ordinarily, you might think, oh, you know, make an alliance with your, you know, your kin, your other Hebrews. And you might think, what's so bad about that? Well, the problem is they, don't, they weren't following God. And it seems good in principle, at least from a civil standpoint or from a, maybe from a tradition. It'd be nice, nice to have a united kingdom again. But if the people aren't following God, it causes problems. And so... and. and and as you can see, um, they get this alliance. Um, he, his son marries Ahab's daughter, which is going to end up being the beginning of more bad things. Um, Judah does become involved in assisting Israel. They go to battle. Ahab tries this, this thing where he tries to be clever. I'm not going to dress. He says, uh, you dress up in your king's clothes. I'm not going to dress up in mine. And he gets hit by a stray arrow and dies anyway. Um, so... And the prophet says, you know, hey, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? It, you know, being Jewish isn't enough. Just like it is for the nation of Israel today. If you don't love the Lord, then being Jewish isn't enough. Paul says, I'm, the, I'm a Jew, of, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I got all this stuff. I can brag like no other Jew. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I don't love Christ. Doesn't matter. Next, um, so um, Jehoshaphat, uh, by the way, did, Jehoshaphat did respond to the re rebuke. Um, next time around, there was a massive invasion by the Ammonites and the Moabites, and he calls on the Lord, which is really great. Um, and not only, and they had, they got this remarkable victory where God got all these people upset with each other and distrusting, and they go out to battle and find out that they're all pretty much killed each other or ran away. So it was, they didn't have to use a sword, which is pretty cool. Next is uh, Joash. Um, 
Joash, um, Judah suffered two wicked kings and an evil uh, queen during this period. Um, Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, married Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. And if you remember, Athaliah, I mentioned her briefly last week. Um, and um, so Jehoram did evil and ruled only eight years before he died of an incurable disease. And when their son Ahaziah became king, and his one-year reign ended abruptly, um, he was killed by Jehu. He was a bad king. Um, and so then his mother says, okay, well, they killed my husband. And his mother seizes the throne. And once she uh, gets the throne, uh, she puts to death all the remaining members of the royal family, all of her grandchildren. She says, look, I'm going to make sure that it's just me. And, and the claim, and any kids I have, maybe I'll get them on the throne, but I'm going to establish my own line here. And so after six years with the wicked queen, uh, uh, Jehoiada, the high priest, they, they had uh, secretly kept, uh, was able to save one boy who was in the, had the, was in the line uh, of Jehoshaphat. And so um, a rightful heir, the rightful heir to the throne. So after six years, of, they raise the kid, he's like seven years old, and then Jehoiada gets people, he gets a coalition, gets army people to support him, and basically has a coup and says, Queen, you're out, here's the rightful heir, you, did, you were wicked, you killed all these people, you're bad, you're out of here. And of course she yells, treason, treason, I'm like what? I mean, come on. Um, and she, they, take, they drag her away and she's done. Um, so Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He uh, did major repairs, tried to get things on right track. Joash is the boy king. And the only reason the boy king did anything good was because Jehoiada, the, uh, the priest, was mentoring him and guiding him. And he was really a good guy. He was, he was the reason that Joash was good. In fact, when he dies and Joash goes bad, unfortunately, um, so, um, so after Jehoiada dies, uh, then he starts getting, taking counsel from people who are, you know, into Baal worship, and uh, they decide to uh, make a wrong turn. God sends prophets, but they won't listen. Uh, eventually, the, the Spirit of the Lord directs, directs uh, Zechariah, who is the son of Jehoiada, um, who was responsible for all the good that had happened during Joash's reign. They send his son, who's a prophet, and he gives a message um, to uh, Joash. But uh, Joash would have none of it. And so his demise would come soon after. Um, the, the, um, uh, they executed uh, judgment on Joash. Uh, Joash was left sick, and he was so hated at this point because he killed, um, uh, he, he killed um, Zechariah, the priest, which is crazy that he would kill him. He had him killed, that his own servants murdered him in his bed on account that he had murdered uh, Jehoiada's son. Uh, the number four good king is Hezekiah. 
Uh, he's generally regarded as one of the wisest and best kings of Judah. It's why some people are naming their kids Hezekiah now and then. Him and Josiah get, have pretty good grades. Um, and so you could choose much worse names for sure. Um, at the commencement of his reign, he entirely reverses the wicked uh, policy of his father Ahaz. He destroys the heathen temples um, and he restores uh, temple worship. Um, and so uh, some years later, when uh, what's fit, what uh, Hezekiah is famous for, the king of Assyria says, we're going to go ahead and knock down your walls. We're going to go ahead and beat you guys down. And we've got a vast army. Our army is bigger than yours, which was true. And so it's only a matter of time. We're going to put siege to your city. You're not going to be able to come out. You guys are going to not have food. You're going to have disease. It's going to go bad for you. And so, um, but Hezekiah uh, goes to the Lord. Uh, this is during the time of Isaiah. And Isaiah is the one, my last lesson. So I'll talk about Isaiah. And when I talk about Isaiah, you got to talk about Hezekiah and vice versa. And so you'll hear more about Hezekiah in a few weeks. And he encourages him, uh, uh, Isaiah does, to be strong and, and, and courageous. Um, when Sennacherib, the king, uh, blasphemes God and he sends out letters to try to dishearten the people, um, Hezekiah and Isaiah pray about this. They cry out to God. Uh, and the, the Lord ends up sending a warrior to destroy them while they're then camped outside of, of uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the lesson is that the people of God can always rely on the Lord. That's the lesson. It's the lesson you see over and over, even when it seems like, like impossible, even when the other army is 400,000 more soldiers than yours. Um, the fifth king uh, is uh, Josiah. Uh, Josiah came to the throne at the age of eight years. Uh, when he was 16, that's when things started to go the right way. He began to seek the father, uh, uh, seek God the way his father David did, at least according to scripture. At the age of 20, he began the destruction of the pagan uh, places of worship. At, age, uh, at 26 years of age, in the 18th year of his reign, he began to repair the temple. Um, they found the book of the law. Uh, oh, I'm ahead of myself. I was supposed to be, um, so I'm sorry, I put, got button happy here. Um, so that's, this is where I was uh, supposed to have this one right here. So when passages of the book were read to King uh, Josiah, they had a remarkable effect on him. That's this next one right here. Steps were undertaken to um, understand the implications of the law. Um, and although Ju Judah would be and was to be punished for many sins, King Josiah was singularly favored by the Lord. Again, why Josiah is a good one. And it's because his heart was tender and he humbled himself before God. And that's the message for us today, right? To, 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 to humble ourselves before God. So, out of 20 rulers over Judah, from the division of the kingdom to the captivity, uh, five led spiritual reformations, two others sought to follow the Lord, another repented in the latter years of his life. That would be um, Asa, which, um, or I'm sorry, not Asa, um, 
Oh, wow. Um, I know uh, Nathan preached on him. This was a Manasseh. Manasseh. So Manasseh was the... In fact, when, I read, when you read 2 Kings and you read how bad Manasseh was, he even sacrificed his own children. This dude was bad, bad, bad. And there's no mention of repentance in the account, in the historical account, until Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And it turns out he did repent at the end. It kind of shows, just as with the thief and the cross. It's not as, I like what J.C. Ryle says, that's not the normal pattern. Don't wait till the very end to repent. Okay? Those, those, they're out there as an encouragement to say that God, to show that God is merciful, but don't wait till the last moment. Don't wait till your deathbed to say, okay, God, you were right after all. You know, so might not be a good way to go because you might not make it. You might not have a time on your deathbed to make that confession. So the time is now. Today is a day of salvation, uh, scriptures say. So let's see. Now I'm, I'm, uh, Babylonian captivity. Now I've jumped ahead now to all the way now. We're at the end, the last chapter of the book, chapter 36. After godly jo Josiah, four godless kings follow in quick succession. Very short reign. This is over a period of 20 years. Three invasions by the, by the Babylonians. By, by now, Babylon, if I had the map up here, I think I'm going to have a map later. Um, Babylon has really uh, started to, uh, their empire is growing. So um, if I put Israel here, Babylon's over here, and they're like just conquering all this area, the Medes, the Persians, and they're just, and they're pushing this way. Um, and, um, and I'll talk about these major empires and lessons to come. So uh, let's see, what am I on? I'm on the right. Hopefully you read some of this. Um, Unfortunately, the people continually mocked the messengers of God, they despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, and therefore he brought up the king of the Chaldeans, that's Babylon. Um, so nobles, including the prophet Daniel, uh, priests, including the prophet Ezekiel, are people that are taken captive to Babylon. Uh, but the Lord has not yet fulfilled his covenant promise to Judah, and to his servant David. And then, so then there's, we're going to fast forward again now, still chapter 36, last chapter. This marks the permission to return, the restoration of Judah. Um, Jeremiah does predict this 70 period, uh, kept 70 year captivity in Babylon. Um, and it's fulfilled in two ways. There's really two ways of looking at it there's a, a 70 year political uh, period. Uh, and there's also uh, 70 years between the time the temple was destroyed and the time um, that it was completed, at least the foundation was completed. Uh, 70 years pass, Babylon is conquered by the Medes and Persians, so that imaginary map that I had up here, Medes and Persians down here, Babylon up here, Israel over, Judah over here, so the Medes and Persians say, you know what, we're going to conquer you now, you beat us down, we're coming back, and we've so, and that happens. And that happened in a good way because, see, God used Babylon to conquer Judah, but then God turns around and uses the Persians to conquer Babylon. So why? So then he can go ahead and let Israel or Judah come back. So God uh, often uh, will always punish his instruments, even though God uses wicked men 
to, uh, to discipline his people, he does turn around then and punish those wicked men. Um, oh, I do have a slide here. So now this is going to be, this is where if, since we're at the end of Second Chronicles, at least the historical sense of it, it's a historical book. And so now you can kind of see the Persian Empire over here, how they, they then pressed on to Babylon, and you can see where Judah is over here. And so they went ahead and conquered Babylon, kicked them out, basically, took control. You can see, and then they're pushing this way. But, but well, they actually, they, I shouldn't say pushing that way. Because they conquered Babylon, and Babylon controlled this region, they had power over it by, um, by the right that they captured. In other words, these people were in charge of those, but now that we're in charge of you, we're in charge of them too by extension. Does that make sense? So it's sort of like, uh, yeah, so, they, so now um, uh, Cyrus is, uh, is, the, is the man, and we're going to talk more about Cyrus next week. Uh, he issues a proclamation, and that's really how Second Chronicles ends. As I mentioned, it is a, supposed to be an encouragement for the, for the captives who have elected to return to Judah and travel all that way, and we're going to talk about that next week. And so now I have to get through in seven minutes, because um, that clock's two minutes fast, um, all the application. Well, first one is that David's line is preserved. You'll see that in your notes. Uh, we see that David had to come um, through uh, the line of Judah. It was what uh, prophesied in the Old Testament. You read in, in Genesis chapter 49 how uh, when uh, Jacob blesses Judah, he says that, you know, the scepter will uh, never pass uh, from Judah. Matthew's summary fits both the narrative of Chronicles and the hope of Israel. Satan is constantly trying to thwart the purposes of God. If he can massacre the royal family, then the Son of God cannot fulfill the prophecy of the Old Testament. And I think under the evil queen, Athaliah, the devil almost achieved his objective. I don't know if she was thinking ahead of trying to, she was probably not worried about the Messiah or thinking about it. She just wanted control for herself, like the cartoon. Mine, mine, all mine, 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 give me, give me. And, um, but behind her was the evil one. And over a century later, when Syria attacked Judah, uh, this is chapter 28, uh, that's when they planned removal of uh, the royal li uh, line. This was another time. This is not when I'm trying to go fast and I'm leaving out details. Something I didn't talk about was um, how the northern kingdom, they said, you know what, we're going to get out the king of, pardon me, the king of uh, Judah and we're going to... Uh, oust their royal family, we're going to put in our own. But that didn't work. Um, so, in other words, what I'm trying to say is God, one of the applications here for the church is that God does, even in the face of adversity, uh, preserved David's line so that the Messiah could come. The Old Testament uh, prophecies must be fulfilled according to God's plan. Um, and that's why when you see you know, when Peter says, let all Israel know that God has made him both Lord. This, this Jesus, this Jesus is the one that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Um, Paul says, uh, for I handed down to you of first importance uh, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins 
according to the scriptures. Um, and then he was raised in the third day. The Old Testament scriptures, uh, together with um, uh, in the New Testament, Jesus' miracles, his ministry, his suffering, his death, um, all accredit Jesus as a son of God. Uh, second, Solomon's temple was... Be Whoa, battery running low. This thing was full when I came. But maybe it's, the computer's getting old. Uh, let's see. Solomon's temple was be, was be the place where God dwelled with his people. God's covenant with David is central to the first book of Chronicles. Um, and then God's temple is constructed in the second book. Um, the history and significance of the, of the temple, as I said earlier, I think is central to the biblical teaching concerning Christ and his church. Um, this is, I think, remarkable. Uh, so it began to build a house on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah has special significance. This is where the Lord directed Abraham to sacrifice his son. And that's when he said, he told Abraham, take your only son, the son whom you love, right, Isaac, and go to Moriah and sacrifice him. Well, I'm sorry about this. I don't know what to say. Yeah, I get a new battery, I suppose, or a different computer. Um, and so um, this, to me, is one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. And so I was so excited when we got there uh, in Genesis 22 when I was doing this small group um, because he's about to, to uh, kill his son to, according to God's, what he thinks is God's command. And his son asks him, he says, he says, Father, where's the, where's the, 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 the lamb for the, for the offering that you said we were going to come up here and do a sacrifice? And he says, God will provide the lamb. And he did. That's why when John the Baptist says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that was the lamb that God would provide. Um, okay, got to go. Uh, let's see. Going to keep rolling here. Uh, but the temple that Solomon constructed was temporary, right? Um, even then, they, they constructed a new um, uh, temple, which we'll talk about coming weeks. Um, but the, the latter, I think I have this on here. Am I on the right slide? Slide, okay. Um, but the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. You know, Nathan talked about a few weeks ago about how a true Christian has the Spirit of God. That's what we have. That's what we have that's really remarkable, is if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you. That's what, re, go and read Romans 8, or um, in 1 Corinthians, I'm, I can't remember the chapter. I just, when he was preaching that sermon, it reminded me of how important, how vital, how exciting it is that we have the Spirit of God that dwells in us. Okay, so now I look and see, let's see what, this comes the editing. I guess I'm not good at editing on the fly. So let's see. Um, let's application. I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead. So I'm going to, I had some more stuff here. Um, this is a good uh, New Testament connection here. You also as living stones are being built up in a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. That's why when, you know, the woman, I mentioned it, made reference last week, when the woman at the well, and they, she has that discussion with Jesus, and they're saying, well, we think you should worship here, and you Jews say we should worship there. 
and now we, we, don't need, we don't need Solomon's temple. We have the Spirit of God that dwells in each one of us, right? And so um, we, should, we should be mindful of that. Um, upon um, completion of the temple, uh, I showed this before. Uh, again, um, what is the key here? If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and not just that, a lot of people pray. A lot of people pray. Praying is easy. And if you're not doing that all the time, what's wrong? But praying is easy. The hard part is seeking God's face and turning from your wicked ways. That's the hard part. Praying is easy. It's easy to say you're sorry, right? And then just go back and do the same thing you did again and say, oh God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right? You know what I'm talking about. We have, to, we, we, we have to turn from our wicked ways. Trials are inevitable. And there's multiple examples in, in uh, 2 Chronicles where, um, and again, I'm going to cut, just whip through that. So I'm going to get to my last point, my point of repentance. It's Manasseh. I guess I do have it in my notes. I got so much, I can't remember what's all here. This is what uh, one of the persons that Nathan, Nathan was doing certain figures in the scripture in the summer, uh, he preached on, on Manasseh. He was an extraordinarily wicked king. Just terrible. Um, he shed innocent blood, right? Just terrible. But when he prayed to God, he, was, he, was, he had chains. I think they probably put a ring in his nose. I don't remember exactly. It was bad, right? And they are just, I think he's going to have to walk all the way to to Babylon or something. I don't know. It was just bad, really bad. There's so many details that are getting all kind of fuzzy here. But he was moved by his entreaty. He heard and God had mercy on him. In fact, I remember the first time when I read how bad he was in, I think, Second Kings or one of those, wherever it falls. And then I get to Chronicles when you're reading and you go, no way. That dude was terrible. How did, how did this even happen? How did God forgive him after all that? He was like one of the worst kings. And God had mercy on him. When I read that, I was like, what? I almost like thought, this is not fair. Isn't that crazy? That's how we are, though, right? How should that evil person get mercy? No way. And yet, look what we are. How we do it over and over again. And so I, I think Manasseh is an extraordinary example of repentance, and it should not be, it should not be undervalued. You know, we're wicked too. Don't think that we're just, we're better. We may not do things that are as egregious, but in our hearts, we are prone to be selfish. Am I right? So we, we, we pray. I, I said prayer was easy. We still need to do it, but... What's demanded is repentance, and that's what we learn. What's really important in Second Chronicles is, is those who repented. That's what really matters, okay? I mean, belief is the foundation, and there's no, no meaningful repentance without belief. That is our starting point, but don't stop there. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, Every book is truth to live by.